on the last episode of the Barbara Rainey podcast. The authorities in the Church of England felt threatened by both of these growing movements toward religious freedom. They especially feared the separatists who were forming their own churches. So, the governing house of bishops sent spies and informers to many of these secret congregations, including the one at Scrooby. Many separatist church leaders and some Puritans were fined, pressured, persecuted, arrested, or thrown in prison. Some were even executed, with the approval of Queen Elizabeth I and later King James I. <laughs> Dorothy May, we must trust in the sovereign to give us hope and rest. Tis best for he and thee. But the boy is precious to my soul, William. Can the beckoning of a new land cause us to forego our steadfast duty to our own son? God's will be done. God's will be done. When the Mayflower finally left England on the 6th of September, crowded on board, were 102 passengers, including 33 children. After 65 days at sea from Plymouth, a total of 97 days from the first launch at Southampton, the pilgrims caught a glimpse of their destination, the new land where God would be worshipped freely and in time where freedom would flourish. Shouting for joy and falling to their knees to pray, they celebrated by reading Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Welcome to the Barbara Rainey podcast from Ever Thine Home, where we want to help you experience God in your life and home. Thanks for listening. Barbara is the author of many books, including the one we're listening to today. It's called Thanksgiving, A Time to Remember. She wrote it as a way to help families understand some history, history related to the coming of the English to the American colonies in the 17th century. And she wanted families to see the many ways God was providing for them in that difficult time. So without further ado, let's keep listening. If you missed the first part, you'll find it at everthinehome.com under the podcast tab or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's part two of the audiobook Thanksgiving, A Time to Remember by Barbara Rainey. By this time, the Mayflower had sailed beyond the end of the Cape and turned into a bay. The pilgrims saw more clearly the landscape of sand hills and thickets of short piney woods. At 10 a.m., Captain Jones ordered the anchor dropped. It was Saturday morning, November the 11th, 1620. William Bradford wrote later of this moment. I cannot but stand half amazed at this poor people's present condition. Being thus past the vast ocean and a sea of troubles, they had now no friends to welcome them 
nor inns to entertain or refresh their weather-beaten bodies. What could now sustain them but the spirit of God and his grace? Bradford also noted the custom of the pilgrims to honour God and give thanks in all things. They fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven, who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all the perils and miseries thereof, again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth, their proper element. A party of men, armed with muskets and axes, were sent ashore to explore the land and secure firewood, since they had none left on the ship. The group returned in the afternoon with juniper logs, which soon were burning in cooking fires on board. The pilgrims enjoyed their first hot meal in weeks. Although everyone was eager to go ashore and begin construction of the settlement, because the next day was Sunday, all work stopped, and the Sabbath was observed as usual, with prayer, meditation, singing of psalms, and a sermon by William Brewster. It was a custom they observed faithfully every week in all circumstances, in obedience to the fourth commandment. In the days that followed, several expeditions were made to explore the area to seek the best location for a settlement. Winter weather now made this effort miserable. The pilgrim men and the sailors who chose to go along endured freezing rain and rough waves as they rode across the bay. One day they met Indians on shore without incident, but the next day were attacked. Though many arrows were shot at the men and musket fire was returned, no one was injured. Again, the pilgrims gave thanks to God for his protection and deliverance. They called the place First Encounter, as it is still called to this day. In spite of these difficulties, the men were successful, having slowly made their way by land and by sea around the interior of the Cape. They eventually found an ideal spot on the mainland that had fertile soil, four spring-fed creeks, and a large section of ground already cleared and ready for planting. The men rejoiced at their discovery. During these explorations, many colonists back on board the Mayflower became gravely ill, and a few died including William Bradford's young wife, Dorothy May. There was little time for mourning and sadness. Their desperate condition demanded that they all work, especially the men, to establish the colony. It wasn't until December the 11th, a month after they'd first dropped anchor, that a landing was made at what was to become the permanent settlement. Plans had been made to first build a meeting house and then 19 family dwellings the unmarried men having been assigned to live with families. These buildings were to be simple, one-room frame houses, about 18 by 14 feet in size, with a fireplace and a sleeping loft. There was no glass for the windows, and the roofs were made of thatch, which the settlers had used in England. Construction finally began in late December. A disheartening setback occurred in mid-January, when the thatched roof of the newly completed meeting house caught fire. Fortunately, the settlers put out the flames before the whole building burned. By the end of January, several family dwellings were partially built, but most of the pilgrims were still living in temporary quarters, in the meeting house and on the Mayflower. Captain Jones had graciously agreed to delay his return with the Mayflower to England. He knew that the settlers needed its protection. 
Perhaps the pilgrims had felt that the worst was over when they finally set foot on solid ground again. But their relief was only momentary. Though they were hard workers, they could not build their dwellings quickly enough, and they could only endure the harsh winter weather without ill effect for so long. As the weeks went by, the weather grew worse. In the coldest stretch of winter, after many had suffered long with head colds, a flu-like illness swept through the colony. This disease, called the general sickness, had made much of the community desperately ill. Coughing and gasping for breath, most of the settlers were unable to leave their beds. Few were spared. William Bradford, Governor Carver, and other leaders fell sick too. During the worst of the epidemic, on any given day, only six or seven out of the hundred colonists might be strong enough to help tend the sick. The pilgrims began to die in alarming numbers, often two or three each day. The men strong enough to work carried the bodies out for burial at night. This was a tactic to hide the worsening situation in the colony from any Indians who might be spying from the nearby woods. One of the men who remained healthy and tirelessly helped the others was the military leader, Captain Miles Standish. Even after his own wife, Rose, died on January the 21st, Standish continued to serve the others faithfully. The epidemic also struck the sailors on board the Mayflower. Those pilgrims still on their feet ministered to the sick sailors too, prompting one of the sailors, a man who had ridiculed and cursed the God-fearing passengers during the sea crossing, to say, You, I now see, show your love like Christians indeed one to another, but we let one another lie and die like dogs. February brought the worst of the weather and the sickness. Freezing rains pounded the crude dwellings, stripping much of the clay from the cracks between boards and allowing the wailing cold wind to penetrate the houses. Both the sick and healthy struggled to stay warm. Seventeen persons died during the month. Indians were sighted on several occasions. Since the intentions of the native people were unknown, the colonists were very fearful. Under the leadership of Captain Standish, the men who were not too ill practiced military drills and shared guard duty at night. Hope began to grow again as temperatures rose slightly in early March. A few families began preparations for planting their crops. But the most memorable event in March, perhaps of the whole winter, was the arrival on March the 16th of a single nearly naked Indian brave. Unlike other Indians who ran away when confronted, this man strode boldly to the door of the meeting house and to the surprise of all, cried out, Welcome, in English. Stunned by his boldness and use of English, yet still wary of his intentions, the pilgrims hesitantly invited him in and offered him a plate of food and some brandy. The Indian ate and drank enthusiastically. After his meal, the Indian informed his hosts that he knew English food and customs through contacts with English fishermen. The settlers learned that his name was Samoset. He was a chief of the Algonquins, and his home tribe was further up the coast, to the north, in what is now Maine. He said that the Indians who had inhabited this area were called the Patuxets. They were a large Indian tribe who had murdered every white man who had ever landed in their territory. But four years before the pilgrims arrived, the tribe suffered a mysterious plague, and everyone had died. Neighboring tribes were so surprised by the tribe's misfortune and total demise that they avoided the area, 
fearing they too would be killed by the plague. As a result, no one lived on the land, and no one owned it. It was another example of God's remarkable provision for the pilgrims. Samoset went on to explain about the other Indian tribes in the surrounding area. The nearest Indians lived about 50 miles south of Plymouth. They were the Wampanoags, which means people of the dawn. They were a friendly tribe, headed by their chief, or sachem, Massasweet. With Somerset's help, the pilgrims planned to make contact with braves from the Wampanoags to trade for animal skins. Near the end of March, with the weather improving and the worst of the influenza outbreak over, the surviving pilgrims assessed their winter losses. Several entire families had perished in the epidemic. Fifteen of nineteen women were dead. In only four couples had both spouses survived. The children had fared best. Of ten girls, nine survived. And only eight of twenty-three boys died. Nearly half of those who had arrived on the Mayflower now lay in the shallow graves dug on a windswept hill beside the sea. With the days lengthening and the temperatures warming, the pilgrims turned their attention to planting the crops desperately needed if they were to survive a second winter in America. But they were interrupted by the reappearance of their new friend, Somerset, who arrived at the settlement with five Indians. Though the pilgrims didn't know it at the time, one of these Indians would play perhaps the largest role in the survival of New England. Bradford wrote of him that he was a special instrument sent of God for their good beyond their expectation. His name was Tisquantum, or Squanto for short. Squanto also spoke English, because years earlier he had been captured by a treacherous sea captain and taken to Europe as a slave. Since Squanto had been away when the plague wiped out his tribe, he was the lone surviving Patuxet. Because Squanto's English was quite good, he was asked to take the role of lead translator when the pilgrims met Massasweet. Within a week, a meeting was arranged where gifts were exchanged, a pipe smoked, and an agreement reached that guaranteed peace between the pilgrims and this Indian tribe. This peace pact would last for 50 years. As the days passed, both Indians and pilgrims met frequently in the nearby woods without incident. The pilgrims rested more easily. Squanto stayed on in Plymouth and adopted these families as his own, never leaving them until he died, Bradford wrote. It was clear they needed his help and his invaluable practical knowledge. He showed the pilgrims how to catch eels and fish at the river to use as fertilizer for their planting of corn. This crop would save their lives in the winter to come. He taught them how to plant pumpkins and tap the maple trees for syrup. And for their economic benefit, he introduced them to the trade of trapping beaver for their pelts. This skill, too, would be important for their future survival. In early April, Captain Jones decided it was time to sail the Mayflower home to England. With the spring sunshine restoring the health of the colonists, he felt it was now safe to leave. Even after all the hardships and many deaths, Every pilgrim in the colony elected to stay in Plymouth rather than return to the homeland. With increasing hours of daylight and recovered strength, everyone in the colony soon enjoyed a pleasing weekly rhythm of work and worship. Six long days the pilgrims tilled, hunted, fished, mended, built, cooked and washed. 
The only break in routine each week was on Sunday, when the group faithfully observed the Sabbath. On this day, ordinary work clothes were exchanged for more colourful attire. Unlike the somberly clothed Puritans, who in the years to come would settle further to the north, the Plymouth colonists wore brightly coloured dresses, suits and hats, and garments of blue, red, green, violet and yellow. The congregation sang, prayed and listened to a rousing sermon by their elder, William Brewster. Especially for our sins known and generally for our... Springtime turned the thoughts of some away from the grief of lost husbands and wives to new love. The first remarriage occurred in May between two of the widowed, Edward Winslow and Susanna White. The wedding reception gave everyone an opportunity to laugh, sing madrigals and enjoy special food and drinks. Another potential romance almost turned tragic. Two young men, both named Edward, fell in love with a beautiful 15-year-old girl named Constance. The rivalry became so intense that the two suitors decided a duel was the only way to decide who should win the girl. The two Edwards met on the beach and began to fight with daggers and swords. Both drew blood, but their shouts alerted other colonists. Several men came running and separated the two before either was killed. Apparently Constance was unimpressed. She chose not to marry either Ed. In August, during some conflict among Indian tribes, the friend of the pilgrims, Squanto, was taken hostage and threatened with death. Under the leadership of Miles Standish, an armed detail left Plymouth to rescue him. In the middle of the night, the pilgrims burst into the village where Squanto was a hostage. After a brief fight, in which several Indian braves suffered sword wounds, Squanto was rescued unharmed. This aggressive military action made such an impression on all of the area tribes that within days new peace treaties were agreed to by all parties. By October 1621, the corn planted that spring was ready for harvest. The fields yielded a large crop that would keep the colony from starvation in the coming winter. Their hearts were full of gratitude for their renewed health, for the abundant harvest and for the peace they enjoyed with the Indians. William Bradford, who at only 30 years of age had been elected leader of the colony after the death of John Carver that summer, was thankful for the harvest. As the new governor, he declared that Plymouth should hold a Thanksgiving festival and invite the settlement's Indian friends as special guests. A date was set and an invitation delivered to Chief Massasweet. To make sure there was adequate food, the pilgrim men went hunting and fishing. In just a day, enough wild turkeys, eels, geese, lobster, partridge and shellfish were gathered to guarantee a great feast. But when Massasweet arrived with 90 hungry braves, all smeared with ceremonial bear grease, the pilgrims became worried. How could they feed that many people? And if they used too much of their precious stockpiled corn, would they have an adequate food supply to survive the winter? Fortunately, the Indians along the Atlantic coast also were accustomed to celebrating the harvest with what they called the Green Corn Dance. They thought the Pilgrim Festival must be the white man's version of this observance. So when Massasweet and his men arrived at Plymouth, they too went to the woods and seashore to gather food. Soon, five deer and more fish and seafood were presented for roasting. The pilgrims breathed a sigh of relief and began preparing the meal. When it was time to eat, 
The menu was impressive. Venison, goose, lobster, eel, oysters, clam chowder, parsnips, turnips, cucumbers, onions, carrots, cabbage, beets, radishes, and dried fruit that included gooseberries, strawberries, cherries, and plums. Some of the fruit was cooked inside dough to make a crude pie. The newly harvested corn was ground and served in the form of ash cakes or hoe cakes, a thin slice of bread baked in a fire on the blade of a hoe. A special treat was supplied by the Indians. They placed corn on hot coals and the kernels blew into white puffs. Popcorn. The Indians dribbled maple syrup over the white snack and made popcorn balls. The beverage was a fresh wine made by the pilgrims from the summer's fruit crop. But before they began to eat, their spiritual leader offered a prayer to the God who had so clearly and miraculously led them to this place. Though they had suffered much, their experience was remarkably better than others who had attempted to colonize on the American shores. Plymouth had lost 50% of its numbers, but Jamestown and Virginia had lost 90%. The Plymouth settlers had successfully built a little community and grown crops to provide for themselves, while other colonies were totally dependent for supplies on the arrival of ships from England. Yes, God had blessed them abundantly, and they sincerely offered him their thanks and praise. May we live by thee, live for thee, never be satisfied with Christian progress, but only in so much as we resemble Christ, and may conformity to his principles, temper, and conduct grow hourly in our lives. Amen. The feasting continued over a three-day period, during which both Indians and pilgrims participated in games and exhibitions of shooting skill with bows and arrows and guns. The pilgrim boys joined the races and wrestling matches of the Indians, and in turn, the Indians learned how to play stool ball, a game resembling croquet played with a ball and wickets. At night, the Indians slept in nearby fields. The relationship between the settlers and Indians was now so solid and peaceful that the pilgrims no longer posted guards. When the fun and feasting ended, both Indians and colonists agreed they wanted to have a similar feast the following year. In November, a ship from England, the Fortune, arrived unexpectedly and delivered 35 new colonists, which nearly doubled their numbers. Though they were delighted to see these fresh faces, some of which belonged to family members, the existing residents were sobered to realize that the new recruits had come without extra food, clothing, or other provisions. Soon after the newcomers were assigned to families in the colony, the leaders met to plan for their survival. Governor Bradford and William Brewster reached the difficult decision. Everyone would go on half rations through the winter. The abundant harvest of corn they had so recently stored for that second winter of 1621-1622 was now not nearly enough. They began that winter cautiously, with everyone getting their half ration of corn, hopeful that the men could find enough game and fish to see them through. Supplies dwindled quickly. Legend has it that at one point the food stores were so low that everyone was forced to a daily ration of only five kernels of corn. It's amazing to think that anyone could survive on so little food. Yet, no one died of starvation. 
Once again, at the height of their need, God provided deliverance. Another ship sailed into their harbor. And though it did not have food, the captain did have trading goods that he offered in exchange for beaver pelts. With the trading goods, the pilgrims bartered with the Indians for more corn. The extra corn enabled them to survive the second winter, although they were all considerably thinner. When the spring of 1622 finally arrived, the colony was much weakened by hunger and sickness, and the famine was not over. The weary pilgrims went to the fields to plant their common crops, but their enthusiasm was greatly reduced. However, they continued on with the life that God had given them. They had many dealings with their Indian friends, continued exploring the land, and obtained what sustenance they could by fishing, hunting, and bartering with the Indians. Edward Winslow described their sad condition that spring, saying that the bay and creeks were full of fish, but their sends and netting were torn and rotten. He wrote that were it not for shellfish of different kinds that could be taken by hand, they would have perished. Another colony was begun to the north, and other ships arrived in Cape Cod Bay several times that year, usually bringing colonists without supplies of any kind. Neither Bradford's journal nor the writings of other pilgrims record a Thanksgiving celebration in that second harvest season. Bradford did write, The welcome time of harvest approached, but it arose but to a little, so it well appeared that famine must still ensue the next year also. Again, God saw them through the winter of 1622-23 by means of another ship, which brought trading goods they could use to barter for corn with the Indians. Planting time was soon upon them in April of 1623. Their needs were desperate. The pilgrims realized they had to plant double the previous year's crop to sustain them in the winter to come. This year, it was decided they would seed a common cornfield for the whole colony, and then each family would be given a parcel of land to plant for its own use. Everyone was enthusiastic, for they were eager to grow as much as possible to avoid another starving time. William Bradford observed, This had very good success, for it made all hands very industrious, so as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been. The women now went willingly to the field and took their little ones with them to help set corn. Soon after the plantings, however, the weather turned dry. As the weeks of drought went by, the pilgrims watched their precious summer crops wither and slowly die. The Indians said they had never seen a dry spell like it. After 12 weeks, the pilgrims realized they would face certain starvation in the coming winter if it did not rain soon. The colonists were losing hope. They wondered if God, who had always gone before them, was against them. They began to pray. William Bradford asked everyone to participate in a day of fasting and prayer to ask the Lord for rain. All the pilgrims felt a deep sense of humility before God, and they sincerely sought his mercy. Edward Winslow described what happened. But oh, the mercy of our God, who was as ready to hear as we were to ask. For though in the morning, when we assembled together, the heavens were as clear and the drought as like to continue as it ever was, yet before our departure from the day of prayer and fasting, the weather was overcast, the clouds gathered on all sides. 
on the next morning distilled such soft, sweet, and moderate showers of rain, continuing some fourteen days. Such was the bounty and goodness of our God. Bradford wrote, It came without either wind or thunder, or any violence, and by degrees in that abundance, as that the earth was thoroughly wet and soaked therewith, which did so apparently revive and quicken the decayed corn and other fruits, as was wonderful to see, and made the Indians astonished to behold. If the pilgrims were amazed at God's answer to their prayers and his great deliverance, imagine how wide-eyed with wonder the Indians were. They had no knowledge of the God of the pilgrims, a personal benevolent God who cared about his people. God was displaying his wonders. Winslow concluded his description of this miraculous event with his thoughts on the Indians' response. All of them admired the goodness of our God towards us that wrought so great a change in so short a time, showing the difference between their conjuration and our invocation on the name of God for rain, theirs being mixed with such storms and tempests as sometimes, instead of doing them good, it layeth the corn flat on the ground to their prejudice, but ours in so gentle and seasonable a manner as they never observed the like. Praise the Lord, great things he hath done. The crops were saved. Another answer to prayer came about two weeks later. The ship Anne, which was carrying many family members and friends to join the colony, had been reported lost at sea. But now it arrived safely at Plymouth Harbour. The newcomers, however, were shocked and dismayed at the condition of their friends and relatives. Bradford wrote that it was no wonder the newcomers were surprised. The pilgrims were thin and gaunt, wearing ragged clothes, some little better than half-naked. The only food they could offer in welcome was a lobster or piece of fish, with no bread and nothing else but a cup of spring water. Bradford concluded by saying, But God gave them health and strength in good measure, and showed them by experience the truth of the word in Deuteronomy 8.3 that man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That harvest season was an abundant one. There was even a surplus to trade with the Indians for what they needed that winter. They had much to celebrate. Another day of Thanksgiving was planned this year, probably in August or September. The Indians were again invited with their chief, Massasweet. It was a season of gratitude. They were grateful for the rain and the harvest. They were grateful for the safe arrival of their family members and friends. They were grateful for the marriage of their wise Governor Bradford to Alice Southworth, who had also arrived on the Anne. Lastly, and most importantly, they celebrated with grateful hearts God's goodness to them. Edward Winslow wrote that, Having these many signs of God's favor and acceptance, we thought it would be a great ingratitude if secretly we should content ourselves with private thanksgiving for that which by private prayer could not be obtained. And therefore, another solemn day was set apart and appointed for that end, wherein we returned glory, honor, and praise with all thankfulness to our God who dealt so graciously with us. As they expressed their gratitude and thanksgiving to God, they remembered the famine 
they had so recently experienced. No one would soon forget the meager rations they had lived on for nearly two years. Though the pilgrims didn't soon forget their recent hardships, I'm afraid we have. Nearly 400 years later, we, who are the beneficiaries of their sacrifice, pause at the end of the harvest season to celebrate a day of thanksgiving. There are many lessons we can learn from this story, but they all come back to faith. The pilgrims sailed to America because of their faith. They wrote the Mayflower Compact based on God's Word, and they signed it by faith. They persevered in the harsh climate because of their faith. They befriended the Native Americans also because of their faith. Their uncompromising belief in God and His Word became the cornerstone of the colony and, in turn, of the new nation. It's doubtful that the Thanksgiving celebration of 1623 began with five kernels of corn on each plate, as tradition tells us. I think the recent famine was too fresh in their memories to need a visual reminder. It is, however, a tradition that should be continued in our generation. William Bradford wrote something that I think should stir our hearts to greater levels of thankfulness for all that we possess and enjoy. He said this, We have noted these things so that you might see their worth and not negligently lose what your fathers have obtained with so much hardship. May we Americans remember every year what a rich legacy we have been given so we might express gratitude to God and not lose what our forefathers have obtained with so much hardship. The Thanksgiving story is a remarkable story of faith and of courage. I'm inspired and motivated by the lives of these men and women every time I read about their choice to believe God in every circumstance. Reading of God's faithfulness to them encourages me to believe God for more in my own life. May we resolve to be a grateful people in this nation, and may we not forget what God has done and what those who have gone before have sacrificed for us. God bless your family as you share this story together. Celebrate the faith of our fathers, and may Thanksgiving become your favorite holiday as you focus on faith, family, and freedom. We hope you enjoyed Thanksgiving, A Time to Remember by Barbara Rainey. It's our gift to you this November. If you haven't already, why don't you gather some friends or family around and listen to it together? There's more Thanksgiving-related content we've crafted just for you and your family at everthinehome.com. In fact, while you're browsing around there, make sure you subscribe to Barbara's blog. We'll let you know when she posts new articles. Everthinehome.com is also where you can make a donation. Giving Tuesday is November 29th this year, and your support helps us keep this podcast and the ministry of Ever Thine Home going. So we'd love to hear from you. Just go to everthinehome.com and click the tab that says Donate. Thanks for listening, and have a wonderful, God-glorifying Thanksgiving celebration. I'm Samantha Lauk saying, we'll see you next time on the Barbara Rainey podcast from Ever Thine Home.